Hey, it's Jose Galison, and this is No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can also find me on basically all the major podcatchers and Odyssey as well. Today, my guest is Keith Knight. Uh, we're we're doing the John Hasness chapter of the Anarchist Handbook. We're continuing this series. Uh, if you're watching on the 20th, you're seeing a live stream right now, and uh, it will be available the day of. And then what I'll do is shortly after I release it, uh, or after I'm done, I will put it on private and listed whatever. And then a week later, it'll go public. If you want access to it in the meantime, you got to be a patron. Patreon.com says so No Way Jose 2020. Uh, it's, the lowest level is two bucks. The highest level is 20. That's for the sponsor level. And I read them off every episode to, you know, thank them for their contributions. So our sponsors are CD McRae of the Whiskey and uh, Tea podcast. Uh, we also have at SpaceCat2K uh, is his handle on Twitter. Go follow him. He's good stuff. I've had him on before. I let him, because uh, for the $10 level, you get to curate an episode. We did an episode on uh, agorism versus session or whether it's even really versus at all. Um, and then I also have Jacob Winograd of the Daniel 3 podcast. Uh, definitely go check him out, especially if you're into that whole Christian anarchy thing. I have Liberty Down Under of the Liberty Down Under podcast, who does uh, like you know, the Australian dude. I mean, everyone knows there's stuff, crazy stuff going on in Australia. So he kind of covers a lot of that. It's good stuff. Uh, I think I already said it, but patreon.com says no way Jose 2020. Uh, for the Tower Gang homies, what's going on with that? We don't have a guest schedule for the upcoming Tower Gang, uh, but uh, we are. We did get Burt Kreischer to confirm he would do it. He's never confirmed a date. And uh, so if you guys on Twitter want to go remind him, be like, hey, when are you coming on Tower Gang? Maybe he'll remember, you know, or maybe he'll slip off. Uh, with a big, big guest like that, he very well could have forgotten about us already. Uh, for Reed, uh, Reed's got uh, coming up this weekend on the 21st. If you watch this later and it's public, it'll already be out. Uh, he has Kim Iverson, and then on the 22nd, he has James Lindsay and Phil Labonte. So he has a he's a baller weekend for him. As always, go check out Top Lobster, toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. Uh, he is basically a business partner with all of the Tower Gang homies now. You can go to his site, and pretty much there's a little icon right off the bat for No Way Jose, Tower Power Hour. All the other, all the other homies. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get Keith in here and get into it. I'm looking forward to this. What's up, man? Jose Galison, thank you for having me, brother. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been a while since I've had you on again. I think I had you like way early, probably might even like the first ten episodes. It was like forever ago, but like, it's it's been a hot minute, and I'm glad to have you on here. Uh, you know, I've been looking forward to have you on again. I knew it'd be some sort of theory related stuff like this, and uh, I'm glad you jumped at the opportunity to do it. So, uh, like I said, it's been a while since so you've been on here. Uh, I mean, most people in our space know who you are, but if you want to give an intro of yourself real quick who you are, what you're about, stuff like that, if you want to go ahead and do that. My name is Keith Knight. I run the Don't Tread on Anyone show at the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. I have had, I believe as of yesterday, 726 videos on propaganda, history, philosophy, um, solutions in hopes of uh, helping people escape mind control, whether it's uh, especially from the government, uh, also from the corporate press, Companies, bosses, neighbors, family members, and even themselves, as we'll see in this essay. Sometimes people have tricked themselves into believing something they don't even actually believe. An incredible concept. So uh, you can find me on YouTube, ugh, but especially Odyssey, you can find me on there uh, where I'm backed up uh, along with uh, the libertarianinstitute.org. All right, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, I'll start off with... 
I want to know, because I put out a while back, I was looking for guests for these, and I was trying to find, I didn't know much about Hasness. Um, I still don't, aside from this work, and this work was great. Uh, it's honestly probably one of my favorite chapters in the Anarchist Handbook. It was great. But um, I've been trying to find people who are good, because uh, I'm not trying to do critiques with these. I'm trying to do, like, and this is going to be hard, especially in the lefties, because it's going to be like, uh, you know, it's my, my ANCAP instinct will be to argue, but it's like I'm trying to put forth their ideas and let them steal man it to the best point. So I'm trying to find good ambassadors for it, and you jumped at Hasness. So I feel like you're clearly a good pick for it. So I want to know why did you pick Hasness and or what did Hasness, what does Hasness mean to you So in your journey? Yeah. You know what? It hasness was so good in exposing uh, the double think process that so many people uh, engage in. So, for for example, when someone says that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't politicize something, that same person will so often believe that politicians should be involved or the government should at least subsidize it. You know, we shouldn't politicize uh, COVID nineteen. It's important that you know we just follow the science. Also, government should uh, distribute the vaccine, determine a patent. We should have a guy named Anthony Fauci going on every news channel possible to determine what the uh, narrative should be regarding uh, vaccines and ivermectin and uh, hydrochloroquine. And um, I think I just got us banned with, with with those three. Is there anything else I could say <laughs> that could screw up uh, the, the, this live stream? Throw an N-word for good measure. <laughs> <laughs> Just Go not on. the K word. Just not the K word. Um, so when people have both of those ideas, things shouldn't be politicized, yet politicians should get involved. They're experiencing what George Orwell called doublethink, holding two positions, both of which cancel each other out. That was such a red-pilling moment for me. I said, what else does this guy have to offer? Um, another a contribution he made was two theories of environmental law. So we can look at there's so much overlap with uh, this and uh, and uh, t today's article. So when he says two theories of environmental law, we could say that law is something that we need to prepare for. And in order to prepare for this, we need to give one group of people a monopoly on decision making and attempt to influence this organization to work to the best of their abilities to create a good environment or we could have a system of torts where people who are polluted get to sue a potential polluter. If anyone is more or less aggressing using a concept of pollution, you know, at some point, a pat on the back becomes assault. Well, at some point, driving a car becomes dumping oil onto my lawn. And these two approaches are very different because if we take the concept of what's called crown law, the state decides and everyone has to blindly obey versus it's wrong to initiate aggression against human beings. Those who have been aggressed against get torts in response. We completely changed the dynamic of how people see this mechanism called courts or law or politics or government. And the second you don't see it as anything special, government courts, judges, politicians, you simply see them as a means to an end. This is a, what I want is order and freedom. And the means, I could sometimes use government, I could sometimes use courts, I can sometimes use any of the millions of other alternative options. So once you get rid of this double standard for politicians, you see that so much of what they ask for is simply due to what Tho Bishop calls the weaponization of credibility.
So instead of them saying, uh, we deserve this, right? They simply just say that they have it. And this lowers the standards of potential consumers and gives everyone lower quality than they otherwise would have in a free market and higher prices because there's no incentive to provide a good product or service that would exist on a free market. It works with the environment and it works with law. So that is my annoying Jewish answer for why I love John Hasness. Uh, well, you kind of answered the, my next question a little bit in this, but I guess I'll give you a chance to touch on a little bit more. Uh, I kind of want to know what you can tell us about Hazness's larger body of work. You kind of answered the last part, but I guess if you want to touch on who Hazness is and what he's about, because I don't know if this is a common thing, because I've read a lot of theory, but I really have – I've only heard of Hazness in passing and really – I, I, I didn't, it wasn't really, I, I never even read a piece of his work until this. So I guess uh, I'd like to hear from you if you know more about him as a person, uh, not personally, but, you know, and, and, you know, his larger body of work, which you kind of did touch on a little bit, but I guess give you a chance to go into that because I do think he's one of the lesser known figures. And clearly from this, he's one worth knowing. So all I really know is he works with uh, Jason Brennan, another great uh, ANCAP at uh, Georgetown University. He's in the legal studies uh, d department. Um, I don't even know if he's written a book, to be totally honest with you. But either way, uh, he seldom puts out something, but when he does, it's always worth uh, worth reading. So there's a great return on investment with regard to the uh, uh, Hasness uh, opportunity cost. Yeah, isn't he a Cato guy too? I uh, have or, no clue. Yeah, which. Maybe you've spoken at. I thought IHS. I saw that before. I might be wrong. It's like because sometimes, uh, you know, we all like to clown on Cato, but every now and then they have a few. They have a few shining, uh, shining examples come from that crowd. Maybe he's not. Maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. I figured maybe you did. All right. I guess let's go ahead and get into the piece, and we'll. Uh, this is there's a lot to cover. He covers so much, and it's good. I'll go ahead and read the intro that uh, Malice put in here to give a little context. This kind of touches on a little bit we touch. <clears throat> it's taken as a given the society without an objective monopoly on law. Via the state is the definition of chaos. Georgetown University law professor John Hasness demonstrates this precise opposite that is true. Namely, that objective law is both an incoherent concept and a, ut a utopian fantasy impossible to put into practice. For those minarchists holding on to their ideal of the smallest state possible, here is the anarchist rebuttal. <clears throat> All right. And you did touch on uh, doublethink. We'll get into that in a second. First off, I'm going to read some more from the book, but this will come up later and it when I first read it, I was like, I almost skimmed over it because I'm like, God, this is a lot of bullshit that doesn't really seem pertinent, but it does come into play later. He goes, we'll, we'll read it. Stop. Before reading this article, please take the following quiz. The First Amendment to the Constitution, Constitution of the United States provides, in part, Congress shall make no law, you know, dot, 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 abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. On the basis of your personal understanding of the sentence's meaning, not your knowledge of constitutional law, Please indicate whether you believe the following sentences to be true or false. One, in time of war, a federal statute may be passed prohibiting citizens from revealing military secrets to the enemy. Two, the president may issue an executive order prohibiting public criticism of his administration. Three, Congress may pass a law prohibiting museums from exhibiting photographs and paintings de depicting homosexual activity. Four, a federal statute may be passed prohibiting a citizen from falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. Five, Congress may pass a law prohibiting dancing to rock and roll music. Six, the IRS may issue a regulation prohibiting the publication of a book explaining how to cheat on your taxes and get away with it. Seven, Congress may pass a statute prohibiting flag burning. And this will come up later, and I kind of want to have the same effect. So if you haven't read it, 
you'll get the same effect too when he brings it up later, and this kind of ties in, and you'll see why this is important later. But you you brought up the double think point, and he brings up here the concept of like how in 1984 you have double think, and he says. Uh, he says, not only is it possible for people to believe both halves of a contradiction, it is something they do every day with no apparent difficulty. And this is where he leads into the concept of the rule of law. Um, he says, this, however, in no way prevents people from simultaneously regarding the law as a body of definite politically neutral rules amenable to an impartial application which all citizens have a moral obligation to apply. So, and he, he goes into how, and I guess I'll let you take here, you, you touched on it earlier, that the idea of the, the conflicting concept of the rule of law and how it is complete nonsense. So, notice that what Hasna says, he, said, he starts with the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So, he takes not some obscure law from some state uh, hundreds of years ago, he takes probably the most popular thing outside of the Second Amendment like just the most it clear. comes up so much. It, it, the, the one that's so clear and so popular. He says, so let me steel man this rule of law myth. If Because if we can't agree on this, then it's going to be hard for us to agree on uh, on anything else. Not only does he show that it's difficult for people, uh, two people, to disagree on the true or false result of what it should be. Can you sell secrets in wartime? For example, Julian Assange or Edward Snowden. Um, not everyone agrees on those. Therefore, we can already come to the conclusion that people don't agree on uh, on the meaning of these words that are so explicit, <laughs> obviously. Second, what he also shows is people often don't agree with uh, their own premises. So when they say, yeah, I believe in freedom of speech, but you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. And also you can't say I'm coming to your house to murder you. Well, therefore you have just used some of your own interpretations to violate what you previously said was legitimate, that Congress shall make no law. What you actually interpreted the yeah. words no law to mean is, well, sometimes, and sometimes is very vague. So there we have the myth of the rule of law, the concept that, well, this is just totally objective. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't want to go on if uh, you're going to uh, re release uh, anything else. No, I, and we're going to end of the, the first section of the, it's basically the introduction portion. And he goes into what he's going to lay out in here. And he goes, one, the, this is what he intends to lay out in this essay. There is no such thing as a government of law and not people. Two, the belief that there is serves to maintain public support for society's power structure. And three, the establishment of a truly free society requires abandonment of the myth of the rule of law. And then now he gets into uh, he, he does a lot of like providing examples or parables, if you will, uh, throughout this essay. But they really actually do. He, he really does a good job of using things that properly illustrate the concepts he's getting at here. So the one in this next section he gets at is I'm not even named the two. But it's, it's basically it says, hey, these two people in this law in this law class are given this example by the professor and they're like, hey, uh, figure out how we're supposed to go about this and what the correct conclusion is. And the idea is that both these people come to com two completely different conclusions. And this goes throughout the essay and they do multiple and they do multiple different situations and each one of them have different conclusions. And and the whole concept of what the 
the the professor is trying to get them to understand is that they're both right and they both throughout this thing have learned to hate each other more and more because the one person's like you're just a you're just a liberal uh you know and you're trying to do this and you're trying to do that and you just want a, 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 you want egalitarianism and the other person well you're just you're just all you want is conservative hoorah rah rah and it's like the whole point is you're both right and that this the whole concept of law is that you can kind of get to whatever conclusion you want if properly you know done in a certain way which i think any lawyer would uh it's a funny thing i, I can't tell you how many times i've heard people make lectures about like critical theory which we'll get into later like critical law theory and how that's nonsense like words have meanings and it's like sort of words are very subjective it can be interpreted in all sorts of ways and even then on top of that laws are insane there's so many laws and so many different decidings on different court cases that are used as precedent in other cases that there really is in a convolute you can come to basically whatever conclusion you want and and it, you're not necessarily wrong um so yeah, I don't know if you have anything on that one. I, we do have, like I said, I pointed out the examples with the, uh, the, the, um, yeah. Like he says, what Professor Kingsfield uh, knows but will never reveal to students is that both Arnie and Anne's analysis are correct. It's a whole idea. And he does go into how logic works. And uh, the idea, uh, I guess we could say, let me see if I can find it. Uh, in the legal world, however, the assumption does not hold. This is because unlike the laws of nature, political laws are not consistent. The law human beings create to regulate their conduct is made up of incompatible, contradictory rules and principles. As anyone who has studied a little logic can demonstrate, any conclusion can be validly derived from a set of contradictory premises. That means that a logically sound argument can be found for any legal conclusion. So, so uh, j just to uh, skip to uh, part four, because what, what he's doing is saying there are a number of legal uh, real world legal cases that have come to different conclusions because pe uh, judges over time have come to different interpretations, just as you did in the first example of what does freedom of, spe of uh, speech mean? What does the right to bear arms mean? Judges also disagree. Right now on the Supreme Court, we have nine people and they don't agree on abortion. They don't agree on gun control. They don't agree on freedom of speech. So if we can't get nine people who've studied the legal system to agree, how do you think we're going to get 330 million people to agree? What this is, is a myth that there is something called the r rule of law. In yep. chapter four, he gives the, the most, um, I'm sorry, section four, he gives the most blatant example that people will come across in more or less their everyday lives. He cites the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and asks about affirmative action. So let's talk about whether or not an employer would legally be justified in having a voluntarily um, uh, used program where they decide to hire either exclusively women or focus on hiring women or blacks or Hispanics. Is this legal to do so, to look for what's referred to as diversity? Well, he says section 2000E2A1 prohibits discrimination against any individual because of his race. So this literally makes any organization criminal who has said we're focused on diversity hiring it also uh outlaws affirmative action the concept of if osha catches you discriminating your business can be shut down or fined or required to hire a certain portion of a d different uh, d demographic 
But notice how much more clear can the words be? Prohibits discrimination against any individual because of his race. Well, it turns out that a lot of judges have interpreted that to mean, well, what that the spirit of that law was actually to uh, uh, was to diminish the plight of the Negro in America, going back to 1776 to America's founding. The uh, the blacks have not been treated justly, and and women uh, haven't either. That's why we need things like Title IX, to which any sane person could say, well, if forced labor to pick cotton is immoral. Certainly, forced labor to fight in wars that are based on lies is immoral. Therefore, most white men, uh, m- most slaves throughout history, have actually been white males under the guise of conscription who have gotten their fingers blown off, their limbs blown off. They've died. They've come back to see their child without the ability to see because of mustard gas in the First World War. 117,000 people dying because of some Lusitania lie. Well, certainly we need affirmative action for this demographic as well. Obviously, this is simply a scam for people who currently have power to use language in such a way that they're able to lift themselves up to be in a higher position of authority than others. That is the myth of the rule of law. A blatant statement like that can be misconstrued to mean something totally different. That's yeah, and he, he he points out here the contradictory nature. I, I just want to expound on what you put a little bit there, because he he does in there. Uh, there it's a it's a principle of statutory construction. When the words are plain, courts may not enter speculative fields in search of a different meaning, and the language must be regarded as a final expression of legislative intent and not added to or subtracted to from or on the basis of any extraneous source. And so that's the one guy gets the thing of like, well, then you can't do affirmative action. And then the other one finds a statute that says it's a familiar th- rule. The thing may be within the letter of a statute, and yet within the stat, yet not within the statute, because not within its spirit, nor within it, the intention of its makers. And the interpretation which would bring about an end at variance with the purpose of the statute must be rejected. And then she finds that the purpose of, and this was written somewhere. And the, and the cool thing about this, he's legitimately using leg- like actual. Like legally, he, he cites the uh, the different decisions or statutes or whatever. He says that the the purpose of Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act is to relieve the plight of the Negro in our economy and open employment opportunities for Negroes and op- uh, occupations which have, have been traditionally closed to them. So the whole idea is they are both right. They are a hundred percent both right using the concept of law. You know, our monopoly of law that we have in a state. Um, and I think it, I don't know if I said this earlier. He says the truth is, of course, they are that both are engaging in politics because the law is made up of contradictory rules that can generate any conclusion. What conclusion uh, one finds will be determined by what conclusion one looks for. Thus, legal conclusions are always determined by the normative assumptions of the decision maker. So, yeah. And then section five goes a little bit more specifically into the language aspect of it. Uh, he says, for even if the law were consistent, the individual rules and principles are expressed in such vague and general language the decision maker is able to interpret them as broadly or as narrowly as necessary to achieve any desired result. And like you pointed out with the First Amendment example, insanely clear. And even then you can bicker about it. Like I just uh, – today I just watched um, – uh, I watched Clint on Figuritarians because I was just a, a glutton for punishment. I just want to see how that went. And they, they were bickering over – uh, the late Rothbard's thing with the uh, with the uh, you know 
uh, with the bums or whatever. I forget the exact line, you know, unleash the cops uh, to release instant punish or to for instant punishment. And they got they must have spent like 15 minutes bickering on the meaning of the words. And it's the whole idea there. If you are, you know, say you're a fagotarian, you have you have one. It's the same concept, but the uh, rule of law. Like you can read into that and think, well, I'm interpreting this way. Uh, unleash the cops. That's obviously vicious. Instant punishment. That means go beat the hell out of them. Like you know, without punishment. What? And then, and then, but then on the other side, it's like, well, if you give it a favorable interpretation, that's not at all what it means. And it's the same idea with language. Even if you're insanely clear. Like it still is always open for interpretation and that's just words in general. So literally the law is shackled, even if it was consistent in, in its legal sense, just the very fact it's couched in human language leaves it open to interpretation. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, <laughs> do you know the last name of the gentleman who runs a show called nap? I think nap, nap time. time? Yeah, uh, I don't know his last name. Yeah, he, he, well, his name's Chris. He runs a great show. I've been yeah, on. I've been on he, it. <laughs> he, he's very polite. He he's awesome. So the question is, uh, with regard to libertarianism and the non-aggression principle, no person or group of persons has a right to, uh, coercively, uh, uh you know, use physical interference with regard to the scarce resources of another person. Something so simple. This is not even getting into the concept of positive law and judges and constitutions. This is just the non-aggression principle. The question is, who violated the NAP? Well, with regard to who violated the NAP, it's actually sometimes not clear. And when someone violates the NAP, are they stealing a Snickers or are they committing rape? In both cases, it's a NAP violation by definition, a coercive, uninvited physical interference with the scarce resources of others. And it's seldom very clear as to what counts as a proportional response. So something very small could be dealt with in a very easy way. But sometimes you just have the right to use, say, a knife or a gun in defense of your person or property, depending on how significant the NAP violation is. Look at how difficult it is for people to come to an explicit conclusion on the non-aggression principle, which, by the way, virtually everyone believes in, even if you're a Marxist who says um, the state should monopolize health care and there should be the abolition of private property. At some point, a private property owner would be aggressing against the property of another human being, of the workers or of the proletariat or of the downtrodden. At some point, some people have the right to exclude others from a certain thing. Bernie Sanders says only the government has the right to the Capitol building. If someone enters the Capitol building, they are initiating aggression. And if they're wearing a Viking helmet, it's especially evil and they should be in solitary confinement for months. So, there in lies the ultimate nap uh, d uh, issue where even something so clear that we have that has been discussed since uh, Rothbard opens for a new liberty with a discussion on the non-aggression axiom. It's still so difficult. And we'll get into the solution. This is not just some black pill of things are mm -hmm. complex. All right. Goodbye. But yeah. yes, I will stop there.
Yeah, and that's how we end up in, you know, it's a common thing. Anyway, most people who run these circles are aware of the Liberty Party or involved in it. I, I'm not, but I, I you see all the time people getting kicked out of certain places because they claim they broke the nap or whatever, but it's like it was over words, and it's like this is their interpretation of it. And, it, and to some extent, you know, words are subjective. You can have your own interpretations. They're kind of sort of right. I mean, I would never uh, agree to that version of the, the nap. I think things like misgendering someone is not a breaking of the nap or, or, or things like that. But there are people who make arguments. I wouldn't say they're very coherent, but obviously I'm a little biased. It's the same idea of the rule of law. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they interpret words certain ways and you could go down a whole rabbit hole. I mean, Dave Smith did a friggin' over hour long debate with Archie flowers on this very concept. And that's exactly what happened. I think he trounced him, but I mean, uh, to some extent, that's how, Archie was interpreting it. And, you know, to some extent that, I mean, we're in a subjective world in a lot of ways. And I mean, to some extent you have to just recognize that and be like, well, okay, well we don't agree and let's move on. (laughs) So, and And, you know, that's, that's kind of the conclusion here too. (laughs) And as much as we are in a subjective world, it's important for us to not be afraid of objectivity. It's okay for us to say rape is wrong. Murder is wrong. And, Archie is wrong when he says that the concept of racism or addressing race is uh, is a violation of the non-aggression principle. That in no reasonable definition of initiating coercive interference against a non-aggressor is aggression. Yeah. Just because you're pointing something out, just as it would not be aggression for me to say men commit a disproportionate amount of crime and cops are going to look at men more suspiciously than women. It's also not terrible for me to say blacks commit a disproportionate amount of crime. It's not unrealistic for any organization to think that blacks are more likely to uh, be committing a crime. And that's just the way that could change. That could change at any time, just as it's not sexist for me to say it about men. Um, Whites commit more crime than Asians. Um, Asians take up a very small amount of uh, prison space, and that's not because of Asian supremacy. And we need, <laughs> and we need to tell them about their Asian privilege. That, yeah. of course, is just uh, what we could start calling a flower scam, uh, <laughs> with regard to uh, what, what it actually is, because it's such a joke. It's almost not worth. I agree, <laughs> but no. Uh, it, and as Jordan Peterson famously said to Kathy Newman. Uh, why why does my right to say something override your right to be offended? Well, in order to be able to think, you have to risk being offended. And that would literally mean every time I go up to a woman and ask for intercourse, her saying no is more of a violation than her denying me the right to sleep with her. B- because I'm so offended at this that now I get to be excluded from Let's just say her scarce resources. It's that ridiculous to say that, well, now women can't reject uh, being with men because that offends them and it's wrong to be offensive. Well, the alternative is to reject that and say some people have the right to initiate aggression against others. And that's that's clearly wrong. So, again, sorry for that long. No, you're good. I know this is a little silly, but I do want I have a point here because unfortunately it is subjective. So in Capistan, we'd have to accept that Archie would probably try to beat us up for misgendering someone. That's a break. I know this is silly, but this is actually a good point of why I kind of like anarchism because it's kind of like, all right, I accept these terms. And if I'm in a community that doesn't accept that, 
okay, that's not going to work out well for you. It, it's kind of like, a, in some extent, it's kind of like the egoist concept where it's like, you know, that's your concept of rights. Here's my concept of rights. And now our rights go against each other. We'll see who wins. <laughs> so, Art, the, I know it's the, silly, but there is some truth to that. <laughs> poor Archie doesn't have any time to fight. He's so busy building this case against Dave Smith. He's been working on it for over a year. What this guy is going to release is going to finish Dave Smith and the Legion of Skanks and the Gas Digital Network. That's yeah. He's been working on it so long. He's got to have so much material by now. He's not going to have any time to fight the Jose's of the world. It is funny. I'm not trying to go off on a tangent, but it is funny. Like with the with the people who go after Dave, and I've started to experience this a little bit myself because I have the Tower of Power Hour show, and it's extremely offensive. Just like Legion of Skanks is very offensive. It's weird whenever people attack. It's never after the super offensive comedy stuff. It's like you have so much material to dig through here. You know whether it's Tower of Power or Legion of Skanks, but it's never that. It's always some out of context nonsense in a serious thing that it's easily defendable, and you're like. Okay, I mean, maybe it's just because it's like it's jokes. But right, let's move on. I want to get buried in that. I just thought it was funny. Um, section six goes into he's kind of going more into the idea that law is inherently political, which we have kind of covered already. Um, like even with all the good world will in the world, we cannot produce such a legal code where there's simply no such thing as uninterpretable language. And he goes into how it's just inherently political altogether. And this is where finally in section six, and you kind of already brought up it already. That the, the how where the whole questions at the beginning come into place because uh and I'm I'm not gonna go through these specifically I suggest you read it because it really does if you look at it you're like oh yeah because he literally does the most autistic breakdown of if you answered this then this if you answered this then this and it's just you're interpreting it this way and you're not necessarily wrong for any of these because these are just in different ways to interpret this word like um. Like if your response to question four was true, you have underscored your belief that the world the word no really means some, and people do stuff like that. They you know bring up late Rothbard. People hear instant punishment, and that can mean a, a million different things to a million different people. That can mean uh, I'm just taking the bum and moving him to another place, and to him that's punishment because he had set up camp in this place and he doesn't like this. Or that could mean I blow his head off. Like those those are those can mean very different things. Like it can mean a completely politely, you need to get off the property or we will use force. Okay, I'm leaving. I'm not happy about this. That's punishment. Or it could be you kill him. <laughs> it literally can mean so many different things. So, yeah. Um, boo, boo, boo. What a legal role means is always determined by the political assumptions of the person applying it. And the next section, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. We already covered a lot of that. But if you want to go on something there, that one we can. Uh, section seven goes not, he's going into how there's nothing wrong with subjective law. So there's nothing perverse in the, the fact that the law is indeterminate. Society is not the victim of some nefarious conspiracy to undermine legal certain certainty to further ulterior motives. Uh, he says as a monopoly product, the law must apply to all members of society in a one size fits all manner. Flexibility is its most essential feature. So he's actually saying the concept of law being flexible is actually a good thing. And we'll get into it more later. The idea that we have a monopoly of law is the issue because, you know, to not to keep going on Archie, if he has this concept of the NAP and, and magical and Kapistan land, he might have this area over and wherever, uh, I don't know, probably some crap state, like, I don't know, like, I don't know, New York or something or Cali where they interpret the nap that way and they can live that way. And that's fine. Just leave me alone. And they can have that interpretation. They have that monopoly. They have that 
set of law over there, and we have our own set of law elsewhere. Obviously, we quibble and be like, well, that's not true, Anarchy, because that's not how the NAP works. But whatever. I don't care as long as they're away from me. So, like, uh, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but uh, yeah. Not uh, n- n- not necessarily. The, uh, the, the entire concept of we need uh, concepts instead of rigid laws allows for some flexibility. So the question is, um, what is an anthill? Is it one grain of sand? Well, no. Well, is it a trillion grains of sand? Because certainly half a trillion would also be, well, no. Well, exactly at which point does a grain become an actual hill? What we have is a conceptual understanding. So to use the example I used earlier, at some point, patting you on the back is not assault, but me hitting you as hard as I can 50 times is assault. Now, what is the exact number of times that hitting you is wrong? At what amount of force is it uh, it is to be used before it becomes a pat versus a hit? It's impossible to determine that. It is what he later calls in, um, in the essay, uh, it, a request so unreasonable that it's not to be worthy of respect because within a world of 7 billion people that's constantly changing standards needs to be need to be flexible for each person in each situation so what you want is general concepts to be applied uh universally and locally you want local enforcement so people can adjust the concept to fit the times or the people or the circumstance because things are so difficult even when you have something as clear as uh congress shall make no law we still need flexibility just like we do in any other aspect of life yep all right in the next section section eight the it goes into the illusion of stable law you go and and, and i actually there's a lot that i pulled out of this one that really doesn't even necessarily completely tie into it but it kind of really has a lot of explanatory power and how some of the things work within our thing. And he kind of goes into the idea of how people, the reason, one of the many reasons of why we've gotten this idea of why the law is a stable rule of law is because it seems that way. And the, and part of the reason why is because the stability of the law derives not from any feature of the law of itself, but from the overwhelming uniformity of ideological background among those empowered to make legal decisions, which I thought was a very interesting insight. Cause when you think about it, it's it's the idea that it's giving you this illusion, and but I guess if you were able to be like a god and back up and look at time over a, a large frame, you would see. Obviously, that's not the case. It, it, but in the course of a lifetime or a or a generation, you can see. Oh, like it, it seems the same throughout. But and uh, it, it kind of goes into how. Uh, the idea of the demographic of the judges or the people who rule over it, and I thought it was an interesting concept that if you think about it, we're kind of ruled by the elderly. And this is partly why there's this constant uh, on a revolution feel among the youngsters and, or, or such, because it's, we're being the younger folks are being ruled by the older folks to some extent. Cause I mean, and also they're being ruled by upper class generally uh, usually from well-to-do families. Like, and I did think too, another thing, I mean, I don't know if you want how deep you want to go in this, but, and it, I, I do think there, he, he kind of, one thing I drew out of this, he goes into, uh, as time goes on, because you got to think a uh, hundred years ago, if you were a judge, you were almost certainly a white male of, of a well-to-do family. But now as time goes on, we're getting more diversity, which is actually to some extent is making this law seem 
more unstable. And, you know, we're in our current situation now where, I mean, I don't know about you, how you see the law, but I mean, shit, we just had the Supreme Court thing. And that thing was like, if you had told me 10 years ago that this would even be in question in the Supreme Court, uh, the whole vaccine thing, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. But now we're in a spot where it was by a razor thin margin almost went through. So I, maybe there's something too. And obviously you have like, and, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with different races or whatever, but there's becoming a wider, less uniformity among the, uh, the legislative people, if you will. Like you have Sotomayor, you have, uh, I, you have a, you have a Hispanic woman, you have a black dude, you have a, a white guy, you, you have all different, you have all different things along there. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but you're creating a larger divide amongst the ideology of the, I guess not necessarily the ruling class, but the, the legislative class, if you will, not legislative judiciary class. Uh, so I, don't know, I, I pulled a lot out of that from that, from this section. Cause I thought it was really interesting how they explained it in that regard. I don't know if you have anything for that. If that sparked any ideas. Not necessarily. His greatest thing is to put the uh, to to not put the cart before the horse. So he says law is stable, and we know that because of where the judges are. He goes, no, no, no. The judges all come from the same law schools and very similar backgrounds. And the only way you become a judge who gets popular opinions is because you're well politically connected. So that's why what we end up seeing is things that are very similar. Just as if instead of the law department having very popular opinions, because that's all the judge is, is a judge renders a legal opinion. What if instead we had a philosopher opinions that everyone talked about and CNN said, breaking news, a uh, new philosophical opinion came out of Cornell University well, then people would be talking about that and recognizing that as legitimate. What if instead we said the anthropology department? What if instead we said the economics department has rendered a new opinion? Well, then we would see conformity within economics, philosophy, sociology, uh, anthropology, and law, etc. So that was his uh, great contribution there to uh, not put the cart before the horse, but to really find the genesis of where this alleged conformity comes from. Yeah, uh, I do want to point this out. I was just reading this as a good example of kind of what we're getting at and how things change. A generation of judges that regarded separate but equal as a perfectly legitimate interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment gave way to one which interpreted that clause as prohibiting virtually all governmental actions that classify individuals by race, which in turn gave way to one which interpreted the, the same language to permit benign racial classifications designed to advance the social status of minority groups. So this very, and this kind of also applies some of the concepts we got earlier. And I mean, because the idea is that the judiciary has changed over time. And on top of that, you know, the interpretations of it has changed over time. So it literally has completely damn near done a, a reverse uno. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a lot of appears to be stable because of slowness, slowness with which it evolves. Um yeah, I don't have anything more in this section. There's a lot in this section that I really got a lot of cool stuff out of that one. Uh, Nothing else there. I think we hit the main parts. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's not the rule of law that gives us a stable legal system. It's the stability of the culturally shared values of the judiciary, which gives rise to and supports the myth of the rule of law. Uh, and I, I put as a little note, and this is kind of what I was going to earlier, judicial, judicial diversity creates unstable law, thus revealing its true nature. 
which I thought was interesting because it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe there's something to the diversity that they push that might end up in some regards actually being it's a uh, failing because the more unstable it makes it, the more people lose faith in it. I guess it's a little bit of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That's a little bit of a, what's it called? People are trying to create a crash or whatever. God, I can't think of the word right now. Um, but yeah. Um, all right. Next section goes into the reason behind the myth of law and he's kind of going into more um know why it says if four generations of jurors British oh no he goes into critical theory at this point uh he's going to go into critical legal studies not critical theory and how there were people who had derived this concept but they missed the mark and their idea was oh but now we can pull uh, push our socialist bullshit uh and the, the the critical the critical legal studies folks and it's like they're right, but then the conclusion they get is wrong. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I don't have anything at that one. The critical theorists definitely recognize that there is an attempt to uh, use objectivity as a source of where people gain their power. So what appears to be unbiased and objective is actually a trick for some people to get uh, get power over others unjustly. So. Yeah, uh, they're they're definitely right in that. But dear heavens, are they so wrong in their uh, result? Just as Hans Hoppe says, Karl Marx is right that history is the story of exploitation among classes, but he's so wrong in where he points uh, the the, um, uh, the the victim and the conspirator class that it almost renders it, it totally uh, pointless theory yeah. just because of where they end up seeing the origin of the problem yeah i, I like class theory just not that class theory <laughs> i'm a big fan of agorist class theory they, they, he makes a lot of good points there pretty clean uh but all right if four generations of jurisprudential scholars have known that the rule of law is a myth why does the concept still command such fervent commitment the answer is implicit in the question itself for the question recognizes that the rule of law is a myth and like all myths, is designed to serve an emotive rather than cognitive function. This is where he gets into how the concept of it is to, you know, people are more willing to support the exercise of authority over themselves when they believe it to be an objective, neutral feature of the natural world. Uh, look like you're ready to say something there. I was just going to say, there is, so a guy named uh, Sir Robert uh, Filmer, he wrote a book called uh, Patriarcha. This was in the late 1600s in response to the Calvinists who were questioning the church's authority. This is referred to just as John Locke is like uh, the sort of source of a lot of uh, freedom foundations. This guy is the source of a lot of divine right of kings theory. He makes mm -hmm. the ultimate argument in this short pamphlet. And in it he refers to these two articles are of the king's oath. Please it you to confirm and observe the laws and customs of ancient times granted from God by just and devout kings unto the English nation by oath unto the said people, especially the laws, liberties, and customs granted unto the clergy and laity by the famous King Edward. In other words, he's not asking you to just blindly obey some person with the divine right of kings, they're asking you to obey God. So it's not me ruling you. It's God ruling all of us. Technically, I'm the temporary mechanism, but really, really anyone could be. In other words, don't see it as me ruling you 
and trying to, you know, get something out of you unjustly. This is just this is just the way the world is. This is just the way that God made the world. There's no way around it. And I think we all have to deal with it. This yeah. is where the myth of the rule of law gets its power because people don't say it's politicians using judges, using police to get some people to violently dominate others. Well, that's not what's happening. This is just this is the law and this is society. And you know what? If you don't like it, you should move to Somalia because you're ju you're just denying reality. There's no fixing you when Democrats and Republicans argue it's totally legitimate. Yeah, well, they're, they're just critiquing society. But when voluntarists argue, well, that they just need to get out of here. They just need to move to somewhere different because they're not living in the, the, the real world. Herein lies the power that the myth of the rule of law has. It increases drastically the likelihood that a person will be obedient to authority when they otherwise would say, well, who the, who the hell is this guy? Some guy named Neil Gorsuch or some woman, Sotomayor, is telling me to do something. Why? Okay, get out of my face. There's a great Mark Dice video where he goes up to someone and says, excuse me, you mind if I look in your car? I'm, I'm, I'm going to look in your car, see if you have anything dangerous. And in both cases, the people freak out, who the hell are you? And they end up calling the cops the gods of, of our society. So whereas cops have the right to look in anyone's car for any reason, and if you reject them the right to look into your car, well, that's suspicion, and now they have probable cause. The, the moment any non-government official tries to do what government officials blatantly do on a daily basis, well, then we're seen as something terrible. So for the same reason attaching God to the kings gave the kings legitimacy, using the myth of the rule of law and attaching it to politicians, judges, and cops is what gives the state its current unjustified legitimacy. That's why the myth of the rule of law is so important. Yeah, I'm like tempted to read the section because he does just that too. He points out how it literally transformed from one thing to another. As one lost its power, it moved to another. So it was the right of kings and it moved to, uh, I forget. I mean, it goes into a whole like large paragraph. But then the next leading part is, and it goes into, but the myth of rule of law does more than render the people submissive to state authority. It also turns them to the state's accomplices in the exercise of its power, which I mean, you did touch on the cop example, but that's a little bit different. That's just submissive. But the idea that it then also, because once you buy into that, I mean, it's one thing if, because I mean, I, I'll, I'll readily admit if a cop, I mean, I might push back a little bit against a cop, but at the end of the day, I know that dude has a gun and he may very well use it or he may try to, uh, may try to, because I mean, I, I, I've had people tell people I'm an anarchist before and they'll be like, oh, what you? they'll like think I'm just some asshole to cops. And I'm like, no, I'm the most polite most generic white dude you'll ever think of when there's a cop because I know that dude has a gun and I know if he just gets a, a, a stick up his ass, he can fuck my whole life up. So I'm going to be as polite as possible. Like, yes, sir. No, sir. This, that. Uh, I mean, if he really wants to cause some problems, I might push back a little bit as best I can. At the end of the day, I'm probably going to be pretty submissive because I don't want to go to jail or get shot or whatever. Uh, yeah. I mean, do, do I think it's wrong for people to fight back against cops in a situation or whatever? No, I just think it's a little bit dumb. It's probably not going to work out well for you. But it's a little bit different. But I'm doing that out of a position of more fear for my life. But there are people, you know, I mean, this is probably the norm as opposed to the exception. People like me and you are the exception. But the norm is people who buy into that and think it is proper and right for them to do so. And that leads into the next point of 
not only are you, you know, submissive, you're their accomplice because this is where you get into, uh, you know, really even just for the cop, you know, say the cop himself, he's bought into that. He he's playing along. Uh, he, they use the example later in the section of like Waco. Those guys were, yeah, you know, yeah. thinking that they were just doing, you know, they, they were doing what they had to do. Like, this is how this works. Like, you know, I have a right to do this, you know? So, but, um, go ahead. yeah, the, the, the Waco example is it, just so important because it's one of those where you, you, the more you look into it, the more you see how just totally unjustified the entire operation was. So when it comes to, he also uses, uh, the British soldiers in India who are enforcing the salt monopoly. So it's not, it's, it's one of these, that's so hard for us to believe. It's like, well, you know, if someone's suspected of drug trafficking or human trafficking, maybe the SWAT team can go in there. But when it comes to Indians in India are not allowed to mine salt outside of the British uh, charter. Well, that's so ridiculous. We can clearly see that no one should be enforcing such an immoral law to that extent. However, sane human beings did that in a first world country. That was Britain, certainly at the time of Gandhi, was a, a first world country. So how were they could convinced to do that? Well, it wasn't, well, because a guy named Neville Chamberlain or Winston told me, he, he told us to, so we do whatever. No, no, no. They see themselves as upholding this thing called God, more or less. But in this case, it's the rule of law. This is the structure of society. This is what's holding us together. Law equals order, irrationally as Hasnus later points out, but they think, they've been tricked into thinking, I am so justified in doing this that if I have to kill people, well, okay, say that I kill 10,000 people. Without this rule of law, million, there will be so much chaos across the planet Earth that maybe billions will die. So 10,000, I'm actually saving lives. I'm actually doing a good thing uh, on net uh, when I think of it. Also, it's not just the soldiers. It's who their wives and girlfriends and friends are. So when the soldier says, um, I'm in the military, people will say, thank you for your service. Well, they don't say that to the farmer who gives us food or the drink producer who gives us water or something like that. We need those way more than we need cops or soldiers. But for some reason, people have said, well, thank you for your service to the cops and policemen, even though they don't have the most dangerous jobs in society. So it's both the soldier, the cop, the enforcer of the rule of law, and the population which says, hey, you're doing a great job. We're going to have parades for you. We're going to stand up and clap for you at baseball games. We're going to do it on airplanes. That psychic benefit, as Mises would call it, that sort of ego feeding is what drastically increases the likelihood people will do things rather than seeing them as totally illegitimate and unworthy of obedience. So that is the power of this myth. He's not just pointing out some funny contradiction. It is the reason so many billions of people do things they otherwise would see as ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, on that, uh, uh, any I know there's probably no normies that are going to watch this, but if you are, don't ever tell your anarchist vet buddies, you know, thank you for your service. You know, say it's friggin' uh, I don't know Veterans Day or some shit. Don't do that. It, it's it's the opposite effect. It's a little bit of a slap in the face because we look at the opposite. It's not. I mean, I mean, I I, I don't know. I I've definitely had that, but uh. Yeah, I, but I, I get it. It comes from a good place, generally speaking. But it's still like, ah, oh, dude, what the fuck? 
but I do want to point out, uh, this is actually following the Waco thing. It kind of encapsulates what we were saying. It's only when these officers have fully bought into the myth we are a government of laws and not people when they truly believe that their actions are commanded by some impersonal body of just rules that they can fail to see that they are the agency used by those in power to oppress others. And then the book and the section, the reason why the myth of the rule of law has survived for a hundred years, despite the knowledge of its falsity is that it is too valuable a tool to relinquish. The myth of impersonal government is simply the most effective means of social control available to the state. And then this next section, we get into the struggle for political control of law, which I find it interesting because literally it's pointing out even it points out that even though the critical legal theorists or whatever, I always mess up their term, but like they're like they're the like pretty much the only legal theorists that point out the subjectivity of the law. But they, and they basically fully embody that they're trying to do socialism or whatever, and they accept that they're kind of right. They just we don't agree with their endpoint. But he even points out at this point that that's what literally everyone is doing the law, whether they realize it or not whether you're conservative, even us as libertarians. So like, you know, cause we, even our anarchists, you know, world, we would have a system of laws theoretically. And, you know, that would be, it is due to our political, you know, like I pointed out the, uh, the RG example that he might have his own little, you know, area that has their own interpretation of the nap and the, their legal theories that follow from it. And we would have our own. And those are still even political differences. Those are own political minutia differences between and that's how we get the different ones so even us that we like to think we're objective and and um i'm i'm more of a person who thinks most things are subjective but i generally agree with the the concept of like you know and cap type stuff uh but yeah i mean even even as us it's a political thing it's just we think it's the right political thing <laughs> like it's still a political conclusion so you know i'll give anything to that well, yeah, I mean, definitely, it's an important, different conclusion that yeah. were for uh, the defenders against aggression versus the aggressors. That's why we can unapologetically say, yes, we're trying to wield law, wield law, just like anyone else's. However, we can rest assured, knowing that uh, the uh, person getting mugged and the mugger, we have a clear side to take on that dispute allegedly, depending on original appropriation and voluntary exchange. So, yeah, it, it's like we are similar in such a way, but I think he's saying it to sort of get people to put down their swords. There's a classic phrase that a lot of lawyers use um, and cops where they'll say, build a golden bridge for your opponent to retreat across. In other words, don't make it. I'm right and you're wrong. Say, you know what? I think you and I both have shortcomings. Here is a place where we can both go, where we can settle our disputes, and therein lies the golden bridge. So it's not to say um, right-wingers are idiots and left-wingers are idiots and libertarians are right. It's to say, you know, the left believes in equality, and that's really good. We believe in equality for congressmen, entrepreneurs, workers, blacks, whites, and everyone else. So all interactions need to be voluntary. The right who believes in civilization... The, you're you're definitely right. The state is the greatest decivilizing force uh, known to hum the human race. So what you're taking is their premise and coming to a different conclusion. So Hasnes is wrong when he says that they're all equal. It's the equivalent of, you know, people who will say, well, you say violence is immoral. Do I have the right to use violence to uh, stop someone from assaulting me? 
Well, in that case, it's defensive violence. And in the case of restitution to an aggressor, it's the case of defending yourself against an aggressor or getting restitution. So I think he's wrong there. He might be doing strategy or uh, maybe I'm wrong. And I mean, uh, I, he I, actually... I, yeah. Yeah. I think I framed it a little bit wrong because uh, maybe I gave the wrong impression because the point I'm getting at is that these are political differences. I just think it's the right political difference because he says even libertarians insist that all should be governed by a law that enshrines respect for individual liberty as its preeminent value. Obviously, that's the value we ascribe to and we believe that to be the correct value. It's that even though it is the correct value, it's still a political difference. And that is our political inspiration for our version of law. And, I mean, I would be perfectly fine in the future if some other place wants to have their own Republican version of law, as long as they leave us alone. I would prefer they don't and they have a libertarian law, but as long as it's not affecting me, I mean, I would insist people come to our version, but, you know, it, it is what it is. If people want to have their chains, I mean, who, far be it for me to take it from them. So, but. but still, so long as the people there have voluntarily contracted. Yeah. So we can say, well, the Uyghurs, if they want to do their own thing, well, that's not a result of want. That some people are grasping against others. And we should, it, it's still important that we have that standard of recognizing it as I illegitimate. And, you know, the Saudis can do whatever they want in Yemen. Well, there's a difference between um, what we're willing to violently resist and what we recognize as morally illegitimate. We still, I think, need to take that moral high ground that the left so often seizes and gets so much power from saying healthcare is a right, racism's inherently immoral. I think we need to take that moral high ground and say, no, 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 we're the ones who have it. We believe in self-ownership, voluntary exchange, and my body, my choice. So, yes, we all have uh, political differences, but only the and caps are correct. <laughs> yes, I would agree. Um, all right. The next section gets into like basically the problem is monopoly. It goes, are we condemned to a continual political struggle for control of the legal system? Well, yes. As long as the law remains a state monopoly, we are. And then he goes into, I really like this example. It seems a little silly at first, but as you go through, you realize how legit it really works here. And he goes out to, there's this little fake place. And in this place, their founding fathers included a provision in the Constitution that required all shoes manufactured or imported to be the same size. This size would be determined by Congress, but whatever size is selected represent the only size shoe permitted in this country. And he goes further. Obviously, he's making the parallel here between law. And he, he goes into, uh, I mean, I don't know how far are we going to do that, but he basically uses it as a parallel with law and how, you know, everyone's like, well, this is just ridiculous. You can't, you can't abolish this. Like this is what it makes. How would it work? You know, uh, you know, people would, people like, how would we, how would, how would this be done? And in, in, in if we, if we abolish the state control of this doesn't make sense. And they go on and on. And, uh, and it uses that parallel that we just can't even wrap our heads or most people can't even wrap their heads around the idea of if the state wasn't, you know, one dictating law, uh, how would this go about? Um, let me see. Uh, do, do, do. Like so, so, for example, like the, the kid's father in this example says, that's a very interesting s idea, son, but simply not practical. There's always been one shoe size in monosizia. That's just the way things have to be. People are used to living this way, and you can't fight City Hall. I'm afraid your idea is just too radical. And he goes on and on and literally could make the ex swap out shoe and law, and it makes the exact same sense. And it's ridiculous when you think of it as a shoe, but when you, when you apply law, it works all the same. Um, uh, one of the well, an, another example that I've heard people use that 
might sort of grasp things a, a little more clearly for a mostly English-speaking American audience that we have. If we say, at the bare minimum, what we need, not it's not every day that people go to court or call the cops. That's That's seldom. But every day, people need food. So therefore, one group called the Koch brothers should monopolize food. This way, we have guaranteed food. The first objection you would have to that is, well, yeah, we definitely need food, but how does it follow that some group of people should have a monopoly that we can't opt out of funding? Certainly, if we want food, what we should have instead of a monopoly is voluntarily funded competition to try to please the masses of consumers that exist in any marketplace, both local and uh, people in a uh, d distant geographical area who also are bidding for these goods to be shipped to them and uh, and whatnot, giving consumers more options than they otherwise would have under a monopoly. So while it's true that we need law, it's not necessarily true that we need a monopoly of law. And not only is it not true that we need a monopoly, it is probably the worst, quote, solution we could have to such a genuine need in society. What people actually want generally is order. Leftists will talk about the need for, uh, you know, we need to be in the streets, and I don't care how much chaos this call this causes, but the second they lose a Wi-Fi signal, they freak out. The second someone triggers them, their lack of order has been disrupted, and they start freaking out about nonsense. So if your end is order, if your end is food, water, computers, microphones, there are two ways to achieve ends, both voluntarily and violently. So if we want to achieve this thing called order, the first thing we need to do is reject the state's monopoly on law to achieve alleged order government. The number one cause of chaos, mass murder, and genocide is the result of order. And that's another great scam they got going there. The first thing we need to do is reject that monopoly and embrace voluntarily funded competition. That is the solution to the myth of the rule of law. Yeah. Uh, and the book ends this one. What if law is not a unique product that must be supplied on a one-size-fits-all basis by the state, but one which could be adequately supplied by the ordinary play of market forces? And then the next one goes into, which you touched on a little bit, is how uh, the next section, uh, section 12, goes into conflating law with a state is basically what's going on here and how he's talking about. It says, most people have been raised to identify law of the state. Uh, the primary reason for this is the public has been politically indoctrinated to fail to recognize the distinction between order and law, which you've touched on a little bit. As long as the public uh, identifies order with law, it will believe that an orderly society is impossible without the law the state provides. Uh, and it goes into how we desire for peaceful existence, which makes sense. And because we we associate these two things so close together that we just we see any pushback of removing law as uh, descending into anarchy, you know, or or whatever. So, um, and he wraps it up in this little end of bringing it back to the Orwellian newspeak at the beginning, and how words have been flexed to to have certain effects. And the idea that they're conflating law with the state and brings it back full, full. Uh, so by collapsing the concept of order into that of law, the state can ensure that it's not for, uh, for it will have effectively eliminated the idea of a non-state generated order from the public mind. So, the end of that one. Uh, all good stuff. So let's yeah. say that um, we see um, the existence of bad cops 
as something that we should be against. Whether you're on the right and you think that they blindly obey the edicts of tyrants, or you're on the left and you see that they are the result of the bourgeoisie trying to uh, stop the proletariat from uh, climbing up the, the ladder. If we recognize that under any system, we have a constant, and that constant is people can be corrupted. Once you recognize that, you don't say, should there be good people or bad people? Should there be bad results or good results? Obviously, what we want are these good results. So instead of asking what goal should we have, you ask what process should human beings embrace to increase the likelihood we will get a better goal. We will get lower prices and higher wages and an increase in access to goods and services over time for people in lower income brackets, whether it's lax uh, access to legal services or access to books or microphones or computers or ceiling fans or anything. And what Hasness the conclusion that Hasness comes to is that the free market is far superior to increasing the likelihood people at lower income brackets will have access to products and services than they otherwise would under a monopoly uh, provided service. Whether the monopoly is Walmart or the state, in both cases, we're getting worse quality than we otherwise would under competition, and we're getting higher prices than we otherwise would under competition. He has a great little section here. I got to find it just because I think he so beautifully puts it. Free markets supply human wants better than state monopolies precisely because they allow an unlimited number of suppliers to attempt to do so by patronizing those who most effectively meet their particular needs and causing those who do not to fail. Consumers determine the optimal method of supply. If it were possible to specify in advance what the outcome of this process of selection would be, there would be no need for the process itself. So yeah, like if you lot. want the result of something that is high quality, make sure you uh, put the evil, greedy people on the planet in service to consumers. Because as much as I may hate humanity, if I can't get a dollar out of their pocket, unless I voluntarily get it from them in exchange for a product or service they desire, well, then I can produce trash like Henry Kissinger does. Or let's let's take the example of John D. Rockefeller. When it comes to government, John D. Rockefeller get, uh, and Andrew Carnegie gave us this education system, which by every metric is the Prussian education system, where people are learned to blindly obey uh, tyrannical rules. But... In the voluntary sector, Andrew Carnegie drastically lowered the price of steel, which made everything which has steel in its production process much cheaper than it otherwise would be. John D. Rockefeller, only rich people who could afford whale oil were able to see after the sun went down. But because of Rockefeller, a by every metric, very greedy, total jerk, um, because of s said greed allocated in such a certain way, people were able to benefit from his greed and his self-interest. So recognizing all of these constants, greed exists, immoral people exist, they exist under any society. The recognition that's important is all criticisms of the free market apply tenfold to the state because you can't opt out of funding them and they don't face competition. That is 
the vitally important takeaway of the myth of the rule of law. Yep. And uh, you already leaned into the last, well, not last section. There's a section after it's basically conclusion, which we probably won't go into. It just wraps it all up in a bow. But yeah, this section I dubbed uh, how it would work. And I, I did want to, you already brought up a little bit. I did really love how he brought up, because it's a common thing anarchists get all the time is, well, how would it work? How would, it work? How would the roads work? How would this? And it's, and it's, it, it always seems like a cop out. And he goes into it. It's kind of like, he goes like this example. I'm always tempted to give the honest and accurate response to this challenge, which is to ask, which is that to ask the question is to miss the point. If human beings had the wisdom and knowledge generating capacity to be able to describe how a free market would work, that would be the strongest possible argument for central planning. One advocates a free market not because of some moral imprimatur written across the heavens, but because it is impossible for human beings to amass the knowledge of local conditions and their predictive capacity necessary to effectively organize economic relationships among millions of individuals, which in my like little uh, libertarian autistic mind, it like that's like a funny little joke because it is like it's true. It is just like to ask that question, and it seems like a cop out. It's just, and I guess this is like eternal battle. We'll have people not on our side to try to explain this to them. They're just like to them. They're like, you didn't fucking answer my question. <laughs> it's a small. It's a small hurdle because yeah. it's difficult when you say people should be free to arrange. Uh, their lives voluntarily versus Elizabeth Warren. Oh, do I have a plan for that? Here's how it's going to work. There is something that's a little more secure. Once you realize that they are the snake oil salesman of our day and they know just as little about anything else as anyone else trying to lie to you, uh, d talking to you about a fictitious house that they'll give you for just five payments of 1995. Once you see through that scam, so many times you'll be able to see through the politician scam, you won't fall for th these things anymore. So it would be the equivalent of saying, well, you say that the state shouldn't arrange marriage, but who's going to marry who? At what time? For what reasons? And how many kids are people going to have? God, if, if we don't centrally plan this via the state monopoly that's coercively funded, there's going to be chaos. People are going to be having tons of kids for no reason. People are going to get married and divorced. And, oh, therefore, um, the uh, Mormon church should monopolize uh, marriage licenses. Or you could say the same thing for... Um, <laughs> If there's no kidnapping, where will people live? If the state doesn't arrange our jobs, where will people work? I mean, imagine thinking, there's okay, no rape, I, I, be babies. <laughs> I, uh, I don't even know where like a third of my friends work. Uh, so, so how do I know what billions of strangers are going to do for work? You don't know. Again, what you're saying, what we're advocating is a concept and within that concept allows a framework for human beings to exercise their faculties. So when we're saying we advocate the non-aggression principle, doesn't mean that's the only thing anyone's ever going to do. The non-aggression principle is a simple framework for human beings to then exercise their faculties and achieve their ends within a general concept. Same thing, whether we're talking about solutions or we're talking about principles for which we achieve our ends. Same thing, Hasnus gets both at the beginning and the end of this. There's no one-size-fits-all answer, which is why we must reject the concept of statism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do want to bookend his, uh, little, his bit there. Uh, he says, although I'm tempted to give the response, I never do. This is because, although true, it never persuades. Instead, it is usually interpreted as an appeal for blind faith in the free market and the failure to provide a specific explanation to how such a market would provide legal services and interpret as proof that it cannot uh, the, 
yeah, and and I mean, I you did provide the example, but in a surface level discussion, it is like it does to some people, especially people who have their heels dug in to the state. It is just like you want me to say blind faith of this. And then they always use the public goods argument or something. And then now you have another hurdle and the, the goalpost moves. But uh, I, I do find it interesting. And, and he does go more into this now, into the minutia. I mean, we can go into the minutia if you want. But I feel like that may not be as interesting for most in the minutia of how law would work in a free market. Really, it just it's as simple as it'd be decentralized as hell. And there would be all sorts of different certain businesses would have different legal practices they would want and probably would have different you know legal providers and such. And it. I mean, it it really I mean, for uh, especially the people probably reading this book, it may not be as much of a hurdle. Uh, uh, but this is more for the normie, this part of like, OK, you want an explanation? Here's your explanation. Uh, but if you want, we can go and dig in that a little bit more. But because um, the rest now and then it gets to the conclusion. Um, and th there's only one line I want to read out of the conclusion because inclusion just as most conclusions in a well-written thing just kind of wraps up the uh, concept, kind of restates it's, it, what it said before. But he brings in the whole myth of law thing. He's no, no clear example of this exists than the legal process by which our Constitution was transformed from a document creating a government of limited powers and guaranteed rights into one which provides the justification for the active activities of the all-encompassing superstate of today. And I love, I love, 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 you know, it's, even in this book, like reading like Anatomy of State, like how no matter what period of time it is, it always echoes so true. And it's like, like we we all especially normies have this you know most of them have this beautiful idea of you know the you know 1776 and the founding the constitution and all that stuff and it's this romantic idea it's like okay but what do we have now like look around you we we just narrowly you know got by uh the supreme court of putting in a vaccine mandate across the nation um it's just we're in just such clown world that it just becomes more and more the idea of just that oh well we just need to get back to how it was like okay <laughs> like, if i it's like i'll poop in one hand and drink and put wishes in the other see what fills up first you know <laughs> the the important thing that hasness tells us is that it's never going to be a solution there are no sets of words that clearly say something that can be unequivocally determined to mean one set of things when you're dealing with one person, let alone two people or thousands or millions of people, which are in like, like every country. So it's a fool's errand to say that what we need are the right laws. What we need is a, another constitutional convention. In both cases, you're talking about a result that we should have. Well, if the result doesn't focus on the process that gives us the result, you're still asking for this ambiguity that attracts the worst human beings on planet Earth. Madeleine Albright, Henry Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Joe Biden, George Bush, Dick Cheney, Colin Powell, etc. This is who was attracted to this sort of power, where by any legal jurisdiction... It is both immoral to enter the capital without a permission slip, but it's okay to invade Baghdad and kill a million civilians and displace another million. That both of those, one broke the law and the other followed the law. Guess which guess which one it is? And it's not an accident. It's not something that can be fixed if we try. It's not enough to say that we need to work harder. The problem is monopoly. 
So this is uh, Hans Hoppe's great point in Democracy, the God that Failed. He said, the scam is people saw the aristocratic elitist behavior of kings, aristocrats, the monarchy, etc. And they said, that's the problem. This bourgeoisie behavior, what we need is equality and democracy. That was not the problem. The problem was that these people called kings, monarchs, aristocrats, that they had a monopoly on law and order. They were the ultimate decision makers within a geographical area who got the final say. They didn't face competition. They did not face those pressures that allow people to disassociate. So even if I'm the kindest person on planet Earth, people still need the ability to disassociate with me to achieve their ends. And that's why Hasness's conclusion is so vitally important. We need to embrace a system of voluntarism and anarcho-capitalism and contract instead of saying, well, the system's bad, but we need to fix it. It's unfixable. It's the equivalent of saying, so the Catholic Church should monopolize all my decision-making, but we should have a really good pope. No, all exchanges should be based on voluntary arrangements. That's the ultimate, not solution, but best approach as far as processes go. Yeah, that's a that's probably a good spot to end it right in there. Uh, you already threw in a subtle little plug for your boss with your fool's errand comment. So uh, if you want to go ahead and drop your lugs or, or last words you have, if you have any more on it, but that was a, a good good speech to end it on. <laughs> the solution is secession. Join any voluntary arrangement of people that has competing standards to the state. If it's a whiskey tasting club, that means guys are hanging out there and finding their meaning in places other than the state and the police and enforcing the law and getting out this friendship need that we all have. Embrace any voluntary arrangements. That is a solution. Agorism, using Bitcoin, uh, not using the Federal Reserve's monopoly currency. They use it because it empowers them. To not use it is to uh, decrease their power. You're constantly competing with the state's monopoly. There is... Uh, two major solutions, agorism and secession. Second of all, check out libertarianinstitute.org. Jose, thanks so much for having me on, brother. Oh, yeah, no, thanks for coming on. Yeah, definitely uh, grow the agora, you know, and, uh, and I, as I did in my agorist for session episode, I kind of explained I don't really necessarily see them as competing ideas. I think, uh, you know, it's the idea of seceding down to the very individual, even like you said, you, different, different groups. Uh, I mean, uh, it, to me, just a secession, you know, if it's on a state level, it's just them formalizing it. If anything, I'd prefer they do it informally, but wh whatever. Um, you know, I'd rather them just stop and not have to make a declaration about it. But, <laughs> you know, we know how these things work. Uh, but, yeah, I have a, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. This has been fun. I'm really glad to knock this episode out. This was a good one. Um, uh, as, as always, this is, a, this is the No Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube, uh, all the major audio podcatchers, Odyssey, at 2020NoWayJose is my Twitter handle. It's also my getter. I'm debating deleting it, though, because it's kind of trash. But um, I don't know, whatever. Um, with that, if you want to give me money, patreon.com, NoWayJose2020. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. That way you can bump it up in the algos. And I, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate everyone who's going to watch this and who will watch it in the future. Uh, you guys help me keep on keeping on. Uh, thanks, man. See you.